The second Bible reading is Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father... He was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendour. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. 
He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Uh, thanks, Margaret. And so um, my name's Ollie. I'm one of the ministers here at St. Stephen's. It's great to be with you today. Just a word on what John said before. If you want to bring cheese to my place for eat and share, certainly feel welcome to. It'll be good for Cassie. Uh, she's stuck with me. She never gets to eat cheese. So I'm sure she'd appreciate uh, getting to eat it. So certainly feel welcome to. Uh, as we begin, I'm going um, to pray. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we pray now as we consider your word that you would be active through it, shaping and changing us into the image of your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had deja vu? If you don't know what that is, it's the feeling that you've already experienced the present situation. It comes from French. It's a French word that means already seen. And it's that experience that you've been there before. You've seen that before. Now, it's a little bit different to just doing something quite often or seeing something quite often. In the football season, I always see Melbourne have heartbreaking losses every week. And that's not deja vu. That's just sad. Uh, this is more like a situation where you've experienced that exact thing. So imagine if you were at a place for dinner with friends, eating a meal and talking about a particular current topic. It's the sense that you've already experienced that very thing before. Same friends, same place, same dinner, same topic. Have you ever experienced that? Apparently, as many as 70% of people have experienced deja vu. But the thing is, when we experience it, we don't really take notice. We just think, oh, that's a little bit funny, and then we just keep moving with life. It's not a big deal. But actually, when it happens in the Bible, it is a big deal. It's meant to make us stop and notice. And in a sense, what we see in Daniel chapter 5 is deja vu. 
In a sense, we've already seen it before. We've seen it the chapter before in Daniel 4. Because there's so many similarities between the two. They both have a proud king of Babylon, a message from the Most High God, wise men who can't do their job, Daniel who can interpret the message that comes to pass, and the same God behind it all. It's deja vu. It's the same thing happening again. But amongst all of those similarities, there's a difference. There's something that's not the same, and that's what we're meant to notice. See, in Daniel 4, it's a warning. It's meant to humble the proud King Nebuchadnezzar and bring him to his knees before God. But in Daniel 5, it's not a warning. It's just a proclamation of God's judgment against Belshazzar because of his pride. There's a stunning finality to it. There's no chance to repent, no chance to change his ways, just God's swift and absolute judgment against this proud king. Because as we saw last week, God hates the proud. And what we see in Daniel chapter 5 is that there'll come a day when the time for warnings is done. And it's only time for judgment left. And on that day, you certainly don't want to be left like Belshazzar, the king in Daniel chapter 5. That's the worst possible thing that could happen to you. And so our story starts in the year 539 BC. It's 23 years after King Nebuchadnezzar has died. So it's a long time after. And there's a new king, Belshazzar. Now, it calls him Nebuchadnezzar's son, but uh, he was actually his grandson. Uh, that's just how the language worked in those times. They could use the word son to just mean descendant. So it's the same way that we say Jesus is the son of David. Even though he's not physically the son, he's just a descendant of. And so uh, Belshazzar is actually the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's the king, Belshazzar. But the thing is, he's not the proper king. The king is actually his father, Nabonidus. Uh, but what happened with Nabonidus was, it turns out he was actually a bit of a lazy king. So a few years into his reign, he decided to retire and go and live on an oasis. And so he kind of installed his son, Belshazzar, as like his co-king, to be the king in his place while he's off, retired. And can you imagine how frustrating this must have been for Belshazzar? He's born in the palace, he's born in the corridors of power, he's born to be a king. And yet, he's always in his father's shadow. He's never able to be the king that he actually wants to be. Until one day he sees his chance. Uh, his dad has come out of retirement to fight the Persians, and that's where his dad is off at the moment. There's a war going on, and Belshazzar has been left in charge of Babylon, the capital. And so what does he do? Well, he does the wisest thing to do when you're in the middle of a war. He chucks this great drunken party. And he sees this as a chance to make a name for himself, to invite all the nobles, all the powerful in the kingdom along. And he invites them all, a thousand of them, all the, the movers and the shakers of Babylon. And they're at this party. And you can just imagine the drinking and the dancing and the debauchery. And in the midst of it, he has this great drunken idea. He's going to gloat over one of the gods that Babylon has defeated. Have a look at verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, 
might drink from them. Now, these cups, these items, they're the special temple items that were taken from Jerusalem. The temple items that belong to the Most High God. And Belshazzar takes them and he holds them in his hand. And he drinks from them. And he gives them to everyone else to drink from. And you see what a grand, what an arrogant gesture this is. Belshazzar is setting himself up against God. He's arrogantly saying, I've got God in my hand. Essentially, he's saying to God, you think you're God, but how come your temple lies in ruins? How come your people are enslaved? How come your treasures are carried off? How come your special items are in my hands? If you're God, then what does that make me? Do you see the breathtaking arrogance of what Belshazzar is doing here? Belshazzar thinks that God is in his hands. But it then gets worse. He then uses those temple cups to propose a toast to his idols. I mean, that's about as insulting as he can get to God. See, as Christians, we have the, the practice of saying grace before we eat. We thank God for the food. But as we're doing it, we don't jump up and down on the Quran. We don't spit in the face of a statue of Buddha. Yet essentially, that's what Belshazzar is doing to God. As he makes his toast to his idols, he's spitting in the face of God. He's saying, yeah, sure, Grandpa, King Nebuchadnezzar was powerful. Sure, my dad, Nabonidus, is pretty good. But check out how good I am, that I can even do this to God. I can even hold God in my hands. It's incredible, breathtaking arrogance. But isn't that just like the world today? Isn't that what happens so often in the world today? The world thinks that it has God in its hand. Now, we see that at the moment with the state government. They certainly think they hold God in their hands. They think that they can decide what parts of what God says are good and what parts are not. What parts people are allowed to believe and what parts they're not. They want to outlaw certain teachings from God. Essentially, they're saying, we hold God in our hands and we will tell you what you're allowed to believe about him and what you're not about allowed to believe. See, just like Belshazzar, they think they've got God in their hands. But actually, I think that often we do the same thing as well. See, even though we might not realize it, even though we might not uh, deliberately think it, even though we might not consciously think it, Actually, every time we sin, we're essentially saying, God, you're in my hands and I'll decide what's good and what's not. I'll decide what I do and what I don't do. See, we might not think it in our heads, but every time we sin, every time we disobey God in our hearts, we're essentially saying, God, you are in my hand and I will decide. And see here, Belshazzar wanted everyone to see that he had God in his hands. And indeed, everyone is looking. But we know the saying, pride comes before fall. That's actually from Proverbs chapter 16. And that's exactly what happens here. At the moment of his greatest pride, as he most arrogantly proclaims to everyone that God is in his hands, it all comes crashing down. Because God won't be mocked. God's not a weak and tame God that can be held in the hands of Belshazzar. No. Even though Belshazzar so arrogantly thinks that God's in his hands, God makes it clear that actually 
Belshazzar's in God's hands. God's the one in charge. Did you see what happens? Have a look at verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. See, Belshazzar's been puffing out his chest. He's been strutting around like a rooster. He's been flexing and trying to show just how mighty and powerful he is. But then, in full view of everyone, God sends Belshazzar a message. Four little words. And how does Belshazzar respond? With absolute terror. He becomes so scared that his legs become weak. His knees are knocking together. Because the writing is on the wall. That's quite a famous saying. You might be familiar with it. This is where it comes from. The writing is on the wall. God has a message for Belshazzar. And it only takes those four little words to bring Belshazzar crashing down. To turn this once proud and arrogant man into a pathetic and whimpering mouse. The mighty Belshazzar who thought he had God in his hands now can't even help himself. He's forced to turn to others for help. And so he first turns to the wise men, uh, the best and the brightest of their day. But we know the deal with them as per usual. They're about as useful as an ashtray on a motorbike. They can't help at all. And by this point in the book, they're almost comical in their inability to do their job in their incompetence. But what it actually keeps showing us is the powerlessness, the uselessness of all of the world's wisdom when it comes to God. See, only God can reveal the absolute truth. Worldly wisdom can't help. And their failure leads the king to even greater levels of fear. Uh, his skin goes deathly white. His knees start shaking and wobbling even more. He's almost this cartoonish, caricaturish picture of fear. He's like Piglet from Winnie the Pooh. He's quivering in fear. And you can just imagine that the nobles are all kind of drunkenly shouting over the top of each other in their fear and in their terror and trying to figure out what's going on. It just would have been absolute pandemonium. See, for all of Belshazzar's pride and arrogance, where's it gotten him? Nowhere. And so this great and supposedly powerful king, humbled by four words, then failed by his wise men, and now to add insult to injury, he's bossed around by his mum or his grandma. Because the queen enters, but we know it's not his wife. Uh, he, Belshazzar had a few wives, but they were all in partying and drinking with him. We see that in verse 3. Uh, this is likely the queen mother. And she comes in and she has to calm down her whimpering and blubbering son. She says, there, there, oh mighty king, don't be alarmed, don't cry. There's someone that can help you. And do you see the irony here? The mighty Belshazzar, who was strutting around like a peacock not long ago, is such a blubbering mess now, needing his mum to come along and fix things for him. And she tells him, call Daniel. Now, we don't actually know why Daniel has fallen from prominence. At the end of chapter 4, he's the king, King Nebuchadnezzar's top advisor. And yet here, he seems almost completely forgotten about. Now, maybe the king has pulled a Rehoboam. So that is, he has uh, scorned the wisdom of the older men and he's gone to younger men who he thinks can advise him better. 
his young foolish friends. Or maybe he's trying to make a name for himself and get rid of his grandpa Nebuchadnezzar's advisors. But whatever the reason, Belshazzar might have forgotten about Daniel. But it's clear the queen mother certainly hasn't. And she tells him, call for Daniel and he'll be able to tell you what the writing means. And so, in comes Daniel. And can you imagine how embarrassing this must have been for Belshazzar? How frustrating, how galling it would be for him to have to get in this man, Daniel, to tell him what's going on. Uh, not only is Daniel a foreigner, which is strike one against him, he's also an extremely old man by this point. He'd be in his 80s, strike two. And so Belshazzar would be so humbled, so humiliated to have to get Daniel in. And that's why he starts off by trying to remind Daniel of that. Have a look at verse 13. Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? See, even now he's trying to save face. He reminds Daniel that he's one of the exiles that's been brought here. A captive, little better than a slave. And that he's an old man. One that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar brought here. But it's clear to everyone watching that this is just a pathetic attempt to save face by a broken man, by a shadow of a king, one who's been humbled by four words. Uh, Daniel then replies quite boldly. Uh, he rejects Belshazzar's offer of a payment uh, to be made the third in the kingdom. Well, why third in the kingdom? Well, he can't offer first place in the kingdom because that's his dad, King Nabonidus, the real king. Uh, he can't offer second place in the kingdom because that's him. So he offers to make him third in the kingdom. But Daniel knocks him back. And it might seem shocking to us. We might wonder, why does Daniel do that? Imagine all of the good that he could have done in the kingdom as the third most powerful man. Imagine the influence that he could have had for God. Why does he knock him back? Well, perhaps it's to show us that, or to show Belshazzar, that true servants of God can't be bought. The king might be able to buy off the nobles and other powerful people in the kingdom, but Daniel can't be bought, and God certainly can't be bought. Or perhaps it's because Daniel knows that it's pointless, he knows that the writing is on the wall, this is the end of Belshazzar. But for whatever reason, Daniel says no. And then he continues into his message. And he tells Belshazzar, of all the people in the kingdom who should have known better, it's him. Belshazzar should have known better than to so arrogantly think that he had God in his hands. Why? Well, because his own grandpa, King Nebuchadnezzar, had been so humbled by God. We saw that in Daniel 4 last week, when God humbled the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar and brought him down to wallow in the dirt like an animal but how God then raised him up again when he humbled himself before God. See, this is his family history. He would have known about it. I mean, we know what that's like. I'm sure most of us know the big, big events in our grandparents' lives. Uh, hands up if you know what languages your grandparents speak. Does anyone know what languages your grandparents speak? Yeah. Hands up if you know if your grandparents ever moved from one country to another to live. Hands up if you know whether your grandparents ever fought in a war. See, it's family history. We know the big events of our family, and this is not just a big event for King Nebuchadnezzar. This was the biggest event that happened in his life. And so it's an absolute certainty 
that Belshazzar would have known what happened. He would have known that his grandfather, grandfather came to recognize that God is the most high God, that God and God alone has true power. And yet, knowing that, what did he do? Well, verse 22, have a look. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Still, he so arrogantly tries to exalt himself and humiliate God. He so arrogantly still thinks that he's above God. He so arrogantly still thinks that God is in his hands. And God's patience with him is done. God had been gracious and patient with Nebuchadnezzar and had given him a second chance. But not so with Belshazzar. The writing is on the wall. He who so arrogantly set himself up against God is now about to hear what God has to say. And it's not good news. Verse 25. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Uh, the image here is that of a weight and scales. Uh, each of those words is a weight measurement. Uh, mene is, stands for amina, tekel for a shekel, and parson is a part of a shekel or amina. Uh, they're all units of measurement. But there's also wordplay going on here because each of them has a verb that sounds similar to them. Uh, mene sounds like the word for to number or to count. Tekel sounds like the word for to weigh. And parson sounds for, like the word for to divide. And so quite literally the message here is counted, counted, found wanting, divided. Have a look at verse 26 to 28. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. See, Daniel tells him, your days are numbered. In other words, you're done for. Why? Well, because he's not up to scratch. He's been weighed on God's scales and found wanting. And so what will happen? Well, his kingdom will be handed off to the Medes and the Persians. And in fact, what they think happened when the Medes and the Persians invaded Babylon was that they diverted the Euphrates River, which was a big defensive mechanism of Babylon, and they entered via the sewers. And if that's what happened, then even as Daniel is telling Belshazzar, your kingdom will be given to the Medes and the Persians, even as that message is being delivered here, there are Medes and Persians waist deep in the sewer on their way to kill Belshazzar and to take his kingdom. See, God's judgment is swift and final. Now, we might have expected that Belshazzar would hear this and realise his predicament, that he might even beg God for mercy. But he doesn't. In his arrogant pride, he still can't bring himself to bow the knee to God. And so that very night, mere minutes or hours later, Belshazzar is killed. God's judgment is swift and final. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 15 talks about this. I keep your finger in Daniel, but flip over with me to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 15. And this is what it says. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 15. Speaking of the wicked, it says, His calamity shall come suddenly, suddenly 
he shall be broken without remedy. See, God's judgment is swift and final, and Belshazzar is done away with. And so that's the story, and it's quite interesting. It's entertaining, it's interesting history. But the question for us is, what does it mean for us? What are we to take away from it? And there's three things I want you to take away from it. Firstly, the world is in God's hands. Secondly, that we're in God's hands. And thirdly, that our fate is in God's hands. And so firstly, it's a reminder to us that even the great powers of this world are in God's hands. Uh, Whether that's the mighty kingdoms like Babylon here in Daniel, or whether that's the creeping anti-Christian tide of secularism here in the Western world, or whether that's some other worldly power. They're all in God's hands. So you might not always feel like that, but it's true. God is in control. God rules, and nothing and no one will get in the way of that. And when individuals oppose God and his people, he can convert them like he did Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. Or he can judge and remove them like he does with Belshazzar in Daniel 5. Which is a great encouragement for us to remember when we're feeling the weight of worldly powers. I heard a story recently about a Christian doctor. Uh, She had a mother and a daughter came to her because the daughter was uh, finding herself constantly scared of dying. And the doctor found out, it came out in the conversation that they were Catholic. And so this doctor, this Christian doctor, shared a Bible verse with them and prayed for them. And the mother and the daughter were quite happy to receive that. But then what happened was they went home and the father found out that the doctor had prayed with them and shared the Bible and was very unhappy about this and launched a complaint. And so now this Christian doctor is in danger of losing their medical practitioner's license, all because they prayed with someone who was happy to receive that prayer. And so what's that Christian doctor to remember in that situation? Well, it's that even though it might not always feel like it, that those above her, the medical licensing board that's potentially going to take away her license, even those above her are actually in God's hands, and one day they'll be held accountable. And I know that many of us here are facing similar challenges at work, where your boss is trying to force you to bow down to the cultural idol of sexuality and gender, or at school, where your teachers make fun of Christians and what we believe, or elsewhere. But Daniel 5 reminds us that all of those worldly powers are actually in God's hands, and one day they'll be held accountable. And Daniel 5 also reminds us that we're in God's hands. See, if even the most mighty and powerful like Belshazzar, if even they're in God's hands, then what does that say about little old you and me? I mean, of course our lives and our ways are in God's hands too. And that's kind of comforting and kind of terrifying. Everything we do, everything we think, everything we are is in God's hands. And if that's the case, will you listen to him and will you live for him? See, don't be an arrogant fool like Belshazzar. I mean, how sad would it be if that's what we were like? He so arrogantly ignored all that he knew about God, all that he'd heard about God, and instead tried to set himself up against God. 
And it would be heartbreaking for me as your minister if that's what you were like. If you sat here today and you heard the warning and yet you did nothing. I mean, if you want to break my heart, if you want to break John's heart and Michelle's heart, then that's the best way to do it. See, don't presume on God's goodness and God's grace. Don't keep putting off a decision. See, God may keep giving you opportunities to repent like he did with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. Or he may be swift in his judgment, like he did with Belshazzar in Daniel 5. See, our lives are in God's hands. So don't be an arrogant fool like Belshazzar. And the final thing to remember is that our fate is in God's hands. Because the reality is, we're not good enough to save ourselves. Even if we want to live for God, we can't do it to the standard he expects As the perfect God, he expects perfect obedience. Yet we can't, we don't do that. And so, in a sense, our fate is out of our hands. It's in God's hands to decide what will happen to us, what our fate will be. But far from being bad news, that's actually the best news we could possibly hear. Because the wonderful message of the Bible is the story of redemption of how God saves the imperfect sinners like us. Because that's what we are. Like Belshazzar, we so arrogantly live for ourselves. We put ourselves first. We do what we want. In our pride, we've sinned against God. And yet, God in His mercy sent His Son Jesus to die in our place so that we might be saved. See, the Bible tells us that our fate is in God's hands. And what does he do with that? Well, he gives us his son so that any who humble themselves and accept Jesus' life and death and resurrection as payment for their sins might be saved, might have their relationship with God restored. See, our fate is in God's hands, but that's the best place it can be. And so when we look at Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, we see two sides of the same coin. In Daniel 4, we see God's mercy as he restores Nebuchadnezzar, the king who humbled himself. And in Daniel 5, we see God's judgment, God's justice, as he judges Belshazzar, the unrepentantly proud king who thinks he holds God in his hands. And so the question then is this, which one are you? Nebuchadnezzar, who humbles himself and is exalted by God. Or Belshazzar, who carries on in pride until God humbles him in judgment. I'm going to pray and ask that we'd all be like Nebuchadnezzar. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the stark message we see in Daniel 5. We thank you for the reminder it is that one day the time for warnings will be done away with. One time, one day, it will be the time for judgment. We pray you'd be working in our hearts to uh, bring us to humility, that we would be like Nebuchadnezzar who eventually humbled himself and was lifted up by you. And we pray you would help us to avoid being like Belshazzar who leaves it too late and is not given a warning but rather just a message of judgment. Please help us to avoid being like that. So please Lord remind us that we are in your hands and our fate is in your hands. 
But Lord, do also comfort us, we ask. Remind us that worldly powers are also in your hand. Comfort us when we're feeling uh, squashed down. Comfort us when we're feeling persecuted. Comfort us when we're feeling the weight of the worldly powers. Help us to remember that ultimately you hold them in your hands and they will be held accountable one day. So please, Lord, warn us from this passage, but also comfort us. Uh, We thank you for Jesus, the one who took our payment so that when we humble ourselves, if we humble ourselves, we might be restored with you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.